Notice that when we made it into Ephesians 4, Paul effectively made this transition. He'd been talking in 1 through 3 about your placement in the economy of God's grace, how you were found in this, and then 4 and following, he begins to say, no, this is what you do as a result of it. And what we experienced last week as we went through was this recognizing this, this kind of pull on we can't be this way, he calls us to be this, and, and kind of what he is calling us into the reality. So 25 through 32 last week, he said, look, you put away all falsehood, and what do you do this? You do this on the basis of 424, that you have put on the new man. 422, that you have put off the old man, and 423, that you're renewing your mind. Let me read 5, 1 through 5, and we'll talk about how it, how it kind of fits in the overwhelming stream of this. Starting in verse 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul starts off, and what he does is he's making a direct connection to that which preceded. He starts off, and he says, therefore... Now, he, what he's doing in this, and what he says here, he says, therefore, be imitators of God, and it calls on us to give this ready recollection of what preceded this. Now, one of the things working against us is there have been a succession of days and nights. There have been all these things that have entered into your calendar, and for some of you, you weren't paying attention there at the end of the sermon. I mean, this is just true, right? And so what he says there at the end of the section we went through last time in verse 32, he said, be kind to one another, tender-hearted." What? There you go. Some of you were thinking this week. You said loving. He said, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So what does he do? He sets up the forgiveness we've received in Jesus Christ as a model and a template to follow. That's what he does. Effectively, he says this. The command there is you are to be kind and tenderhearted. From this manifestation of kindness, of tenderheartedness, you're to forgive people. Why? Why? Because God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Because God in Christ Jesus forgave you. So he comes into verse 1 here. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. And so there's this understanding. There's this understanding. Because you have received forgiveness, you're called to imitate God. Now how have we most readily seen Christ or God demonstrate his pattern of behavior, his characteristics? What do we see? It's forgiveness. It's forgiveness. Right? God in Christ forgave us. That's what he said in 32. So when we come into this passage, he says, therefore be imitators of God. We have this understanding. Well, I know partially what he's saying. Partially what he's saying is that you need to imitate God by forgiving those around you. Opposed to this, you might say, if you are unforgiving, if you hold on to forgiveness, if you refuse to let things go to forgive people around you, then you are not imitating God, but you're imitating the opposite of God because you're holding on to forgiveness. Because you're holding on to forgiveness. He says, therefore, be imitators 
of God. And look what he calls the Christians that receive this letter. By extension, look what he calls us. It's beloved children. It's beloved children. God the Father, through his interaction with humanity, is demonstrating the character traits that he desires his creation to follow in. God the Father is the one who has made us in his image and his likeness Genesis 1.26, he is calling us to demonstrate this pattern of behavior. And so he says here, be imitators of God. And then he says, this is who you are. You are beloved children of God. You're the one in whom the, the love of God rests. You're the one by extension of Christ whom the favor of God rests. And he calls you to walk in that reality. And the first way that we are called to imitate God and it's bringing back this painful message of last week is by forgiving people. Who do we forgive? We forgive those who have wronged us. Right? It's, it's, it, you can't forgive someone that has not wronged you. And so it's not like we're going out and we're finding people and so you find the sweetest, most congenial person you've ever met and you say, friend, you don't know me, but I want to forgive you. And she says, for what? And you say, I don't know. I was told to forgive somebody and so I'm just going to make something up. You stared at me. I didn't like it. Be forgiven. Forgiveness calls upon us to release those from the entrapment of our rage and anger. Okay? And so if you do something against me, you say something about my wife or about my family, like instantly the hackles go up. I am incensed because of your feelings towards my family. Now what the word of God calls me to do is to forgive you. Humanly speaking, this is difficult. This is a difficulty for us to forgive those that have wronged us when every part of us just wants to latch our hands around their throat and squeeze every bit of life out of them, does it not? When somebody wrongs your family, this isn't how you feel? But what the word of God calls us to is to put those things away. Why? Because 422, we have put off the old man. 423, we have renewed our mind. 424, we are walking in the reality of the new man. And on the basis of this, and God having demonstrated his great love for us in forgiving us, when? 2, 1, and 2, while we were dead. And so then we are also able to graciously extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us and so in demonstrate what it is to be a child of God. As children of God, we have received an absolutely incredible forgiveness. And really, the, the, the deeper you were in sin or your recognition of it prior to coming to salvation in Jesus Christ, the more apparent this is to you. So the more egregious your sin, the more you recognize the holiness of God as it's compared to your position in Jesus, right? Before you come to salvation, when you recognize this, the more pronounced you recognize your sin, the more pronounced you recognize the holiness of God, the more blown away you are that a dead person received the kindness of God as demonstrated in the forgiveness given to them through Jesus Christ. Amen? And as such, he calls you to be imitators of God, to walk in light of that forgiveness, to graciously extend that forgiveness to those you encounter. And what does he say next? He says, and walk in love. Everybody say, walk in love. He calls us to walk in love. Now, walk has been this word that Paul has used over and over again in this book of Ephesians. You find it in his other letters as well. But one of the most pronounced places that we find this is all the way back in chapter 2. 
Chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Everybody say, I was dead. But now I'm not. And look, he calls us into this reality. He says that you used to walk in deadness. Now look at, I want you to observe the change that takes place when he has regenerated our hearts, when he has made us new, made us alive with Jesus. We were once dead. We walked, we liked it. We, we imbibed our sin. We drank our sin. We were living embodiments of sin. We were set apart from God. In the, in the midst of that, Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 tell us that God, being rich in kindness, came near to us and he graciously extended us the right to be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And then in that forgiven state, he calls us to demonstrate that forgiveness in Ephesians 2.10. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Furthermore, we find that God in his kindness, God in his sovereignty, God in his foreknowledge, he laid up for us good works. And then he gave us gifts so that we might demonstrate and work out those good works. This God calls us to walk in love. He calls us to demonstrate who he is. He is a God who has graciously bestowed his love upon us. And for some of us, this is a decidedly difficult message to receive. You see, we read this, and he says, and walk in love. And, and, and honestly, for me, the way that I read this and the way that I come at this most readily, the way that is easiest for me is to come up and say, God is calling me to love those around me. There's truth in that. There's truth in that. God is calling me to encounter people and, and, and to come alongside the unlovable, which are some of you, and to love you, and to love you. Your wife's laughing, but you realize I'm talking about you. He's talking about coming alongside in some sense and loving people. And this is easy for me, not because some of you are so easy to love, because it's something to do. It's something to do. And some of you, this is an incredible challenge as we are to come alongside and to love one another. But the difficult thing for me, where I'm at, is to receive this love. That's where it hits me hard. The easy thing for me, or the thing that is most readily met with my disposition and what I feel God is calling me to, and the thing that kind of moves in my character traits and personality, is to go out and to love people. The difficult thing is to recognize that in this walking out of love, that you're walking out love received. And it's the walking out of this love received that even enables you to love on those you encounter. But the difficult thing for me it's just to sit and meditate and to receive the love of God that has come to me. I can't tell you how many people I meet. That this is kind of where they're at. They say, I really wish God would just give me something to do. And you know, I, I, I could feed poor people. I could hang out with widows. I could go to the nursing home and read books. And, and I say, but you know, friend, to a certain degree, what God is also calling you to do is recognize that you are loved. And they'll say, well, yeah, well, I'm loved because I spend all this time at the nursing home. I'm loved because I give my money to the poor. I'm loved because of these things. No, I say, you are loved because of where you are in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is what God's word tells us. That it is in him that we are loved. It is in him that we are forgiven. And in this love, we are told it is important for us, it is necessary for us to have time of just reflecting that God loves you. God loves you. Some years ago, I was preparing to move to Prague. My family and I were moving there to go be missionaries. And 
I, I had this friend who was kind of training me in different evangelism techniques, and, and this guy, I mean, he can turn a conversation about carpet into this person's knees on the carpet, leading them um, in becoming a Christian. And I said, I said, Victor, had, what, what different ways do you find most uh, beneficial in leading somebody to faith? You can tell I just graduated from seminary, trying to diagram this thing. And he said, you know, sometimes I just walk up and I just tell somebody something so simply and say, did you know that God loves you? And I said, I can do that. Like, that's something I can do. And so the very next time I had an opportunity, I was on the phone and we were canceling our phone contracts because I don't need a U.S. cell service contract living overseas. And so I got this lady on the phone, and, and I don't remember her name. Let's call her Miranda. I said, Miranda, how are you today? And she said, I'm doing very good. I said, Miranda, look, I don't know if anybody has ever told you this, but God loves you. Pause, pause, pause. Loud, continuous sobbing for a good two, three minutes. I mean, just like had to hold the phone away from my head. She is sobbing. I mean, loud. If she's in any type of cubicle setup, people around her think I'm radically offending this woman. Right? Her supervisor's coming by and say, just hang up on him. He's a jerk. And so we go through this, and, and, and she eventually stops sobbing, and I say, uh, Miranda, can I just say again, God loves you. She says, I just, it's so hard for me to receive that, a, that God would love me because he doesn't know my life. And we entered into this conversation where I was able to share with her why God would love her and love her in Jesus Christ. It's a hard thing for us to receive. But look here at the depths of this love and look here at the position of this love. We'd already learned, we'd already learned in Ephesians 3.17 that it is from this place of love that Christ is dwelling in our hearts that we are rooted and grounded in it to what degree? So that we might even begin to know, verse 19, the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. It is from this place of love received, love understood, that we're to walk out love given. Do you see that? And so Paul comes into it in verse 1 of chapter 5. Effectively what he does is he's setting down this landmark, this pivot point, where he says, therefore, and so we say on the one hand we are forgiven, therefore, on the other hand, we are loved. And so as people who are loved, as people who are forgiven, we are to walk out the reality of forgiveness received, love received, forgiveness extended, love extended. And look what he does. He gives us a demonstration of this love, just as he had given us a demonstration of the forgiveness in 432. He says, as, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Can I tell you there are probably no more beautiful words you will hear today than these. Walk in love as Christ loved us. As Christ loved me, you might say, and gave himself up for me. But he comes at it from this collective position, coming to a body of believers, and says the reason that you are able to walk out the truth of the gospel in love is because God loved you. Because Jesus gave himself up willingly for you recognize the son of god freely surrendered his life as a sacrifice the passage tells us here a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to god it wasn't under compulsion but he willingly surrendered his life so that you might receive the love and forgiveness of god this is the great sacrifice of jesus christ that he might bring you near to god through this sacrifice through this fragrant offering 
No, what Paul is doing in 1 and 2 is building up the believer. Really, from about the time he hit 432, he's building you up. He wants you to understand that you are forgiven and you should forgive. He wants you to understand that you are loved and you are called to love. Because what he's about to do is get into some difficult things for us. He was getting into some difficult things for the Ephesians there in their culture that was hypersexed and even more for us to a certain degree today. He is getting into this, this society, this culture that has had all kinds of perversions with sex and the idea of, of sex. You're forgiven. You are loved. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. God is well pleased in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, which is met and visited upon us in salvation. This gospel truth then, comes with it this ethical imperative kicking off in verse 3. Look what he says. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. These things must not even be named among you. And this is really where we begin to kind of quiver and shake, right? He comes into this passage. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity. And we look around and we say, This is our culture. Somewhere along the line, the church lost one of its best messages and so it's like god loves you jesus forgave you sex is for your enjoyment like somewhere along the lines when you started talking about sex in the church everybody looked down and said oh man it's going to be over in like 25 to 30 minutes and then we can go home eat fried chicken and pretend like you didn't say it we'll show back up next sunday right Somewhere along the lines, the church lost the message that sex is intended for your good pleasure and God's glory. No amen. (laughs) Some of you have very boring lives at home. Now you all wish you had to go back and have that amen. For some reason, this, and it always gets attributed to the Puritans, and it's not true, but for some reason, this prudish mentality of sex crept into church, and we forgot that, that sex between a husband and his wife is to be enjoyed. It's to be enjoyed. Sometime you and your wife should get together and read Song of Songs together. Sometime you guys should recognize that God created sex to be within the confines of marriage for your mutual enjoyment. Do you recognize that the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 7, dealt with the subject of what, here let me just read it for you. Some of you are not going to believe this is in the Word. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man, it is good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Look what he says here. Do not deprive one another, except for for perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again, And why does he talk about this? Why does Paul talk about that married people should be having sex with each other? Like husband and wife, with a husband and wife. 
you, the couple that were married. You get that, okay? You got to be careful. You got to be careful. It's because of this, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He recognizes that you're going to want, husbands, you're going to want to have sex with your wife. He recognizes, wives, that you're going to want or should want to have sex with your husbands. And what he tells you is don't have extended periods apart, except for that where you agree mutually that is for your good. This is good news. This is good news for married couples. This is good news for folks that want to be married. What he says is sex is good. We come into this passage, and he says, but sexual immorality, and we completely forget the fact that God has given sex to us. Sex is something God designed for the pleasure of humanity to populate the world and for his glory and for his renown. But even then, we come into this statement of sexual immorality and purity, and we tend to go after things that aren't manifest in our own lives. And we say sexual impurity and immorality. Matt, this is, these are things that, that, that we don't have. These are things like homosexuality, bestiality, pedophilia, and any other sexual fetish that I don't have in my own life. And do you know why we go there? Largely, we go there because we don't want to deal with the own depravity in our own heart. One of the biggest problems outside of marital unfaithfulness or premarital sex, having sex before you are married with someone you are not married to is the idea and understanding of the usage of pornography. Now, we live in a time in a society where I can flip out my phone, type in something, or request something, and it starts showing up in images. And it's just right there. It's, it's readily accessible. And it's such an evil for us. And this is why. Because it takes something that is designed to operate within the confines of marriage and it makes it for your own personal, selfish gratification. It's not something to which God can be glorified. It's not something that upholds the original design of marriage and sex. But it is something that is, it is building in you desires that are unhealthy. It is building in you desires that are sinful. And so we come into this and we recognize that, that pornography is a huge problem. But one of the reasons we don't talk about it is because if you think sex makes people uncomfortable to talk about, you should bring up the issue of pornography usage. You should bring it up. Now, when Valerie and I were going through uh, training to go overseas with the IMB, the guy that was vetting everybody, we had a conversation after one, setting, after one session and he begins to just kind of share with us. He says, do you recognize that, that, you know, we ask every candidate, when is the last time you viewed pornography? And he said, what we've seen in recent years is that we recognize the increasing number of women viewing pornography. He said, this is something that we didn't see before. What we recognize is that pornographic usage is not something that is strictly a male problem. But it's something that is a fallen person problem. This is a way the enemy uses to come in and excite you sexually for an outlet that has no end. This is taking somebody who's made in the image and the likeness of God and using their image and likeness to your own personal gratification. This is wrong. If you are struggling with the usage of pornography, share that. If you're a man, find other brothers in Christ that you can share that with and you can have come alongside you and ask you the difficult question, brother, did you look at porn this week? 
If you are a woman, find a, a senior woman in Christ who you can have this really awkward conversation with on the front end. And you say, look, I struggle with looking at pornography. Can you help me with this? Can you help me? Can you ask me if I've been viewing it? Can you hold me accountable not to do this? Can you enter into a covenant with me before my eyes so that I won't let any unclean thing come before them? Will you do this? This is what we have to do. Like we've got to love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough that those who struggle with this, we have to bear up underneath them to help them walk out this difficult struggle. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity. Parents, if you raise your children solely with the thought of that they should not have sex before marriage, but you put on them this expectation that they should not be married until they're 25 or 30, you're setting up for them a very difficult road. Sex is to be utilized, enjoyed, experienced within the confines of marriage. Amen? When you ask a child or come to a child and say, look, teenagers, I want you guys to remain pure. I want you guys to be chaste. I don't want you to have sex before you're ready to be united in marriage with someone. But here's the deal. You need to wait 25 years. That's like giving them a candle, pouring gasoline on top of it, lighting it, and saying, I want you to hold this thing, but I don't ever want you to be burned. It would be a much better thing for them to get married younger than to be engaging in behavior that is wrong. Now some of you just need to tame your, your, your inner wranglings, your passions. You were created eventually to have sex, not now. And you're also not created to be creative with the way that you avoid having sex. Like some people, they, they get creative and they say, look, I, I can't have sex in the traditional way, and so they enter into all these other ways to gratify themselves sexually. This is why Paul doesn't just say, Coitus is, forbid, is forbidden, okay? Like standard sex is forbidden. What he says there, what he says there is all sex, sexual immorality and impurity. Those things that you derive sexual pleasure from outside the confines of marriage are sinful. This is what Paul says. So the question is not how far is too far. The question is how might I live a chaste and pure life before God and so honor him? And so that when I am united with my spouse, we might come together and honor him. Because we have been pure and sought purity together. Now look what he goes on to say. And this is a really interesting pairing. He says, sexual immorality and all impurity are covetousness. It, 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 this idea of covetousness paired in there. Sexual immorality and impurity Super uncomfortable, don't want to talk about it. But then this idea of covetousness, we don't recognize that some of us, in seeking to possess more and more, have become possessed by more and more. Just as he comes to the idea of sexual immorality and impurity, he turns to this idea of things, of wanting stuff. Of wanting stuff. And some of us, we're building this into our children, or building this into our own identity, that every time we see the latest thing come out, we get it. Every time we see the latest stock tip, we buy it. Every time we see this latest thing for our houses, we build it. And some of us are so enslaved to this idea of covetousness, of greed, that we're unable to be charitable. Because the opposite of covetousness 
is charity. You want to know if you struggle with money, things, and possessions? Try giving some of them away. Does it produce in you joy, or does it produce in you this sign of, i got to drop to my knees and cry until God gives it back to me? None of these things, as Paul says it, should even be named among us. This, just, this doesn't give us the understanding and distinction that we shouldn't talk about these things, discuss them as we're doing today in a very open and public format, but it gives us the understanding that we should not be known by these things. That when people view the church, they shouldn't say, ah, there goes that group of, of sexually impure, immodest, and covetous people. This should not be named among the church of Jesus Christ. This should not be named among us. Now let him come back to the positive. Let him come back to the positive. Recognize who you are in Jesus Christ. Flee sexual immorality, all impurity and covetousness. Why? Because you are a saint in Jesus Christ. The reason these things should not be named among you is because according to God's word, he considers you to be a saint. In Ephesians 1.4 he said that he chose you before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless before him. And he continues this idea here. The reason these things should not be named among you is because you have put on the new man. These things, these things are caught up in our former identity which militates, which wants to seek advancement in our present reality under Jesus Christ. And the word of God says it should not be a part of your life. It should not be a part of your life. Now look at this. He moves from the exercising of these things to their discussion. And, and, and discussion in this pejorative or, or mocking manner. Now you remember we already talked about Ephesians 4.29. And in Ephesians 4.29 he said, let there be no corrupting talk. Let there be no corrupting talk that comes out of your mouth. And here he kind of comes back and he rehashes this, but it's decidedly with a sexual bend and a sexual nature. And so he's let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Some of us, because we are uncomfortable discussing appropriate sexuality, we turn to joking with it. We have a whole series of jokes about homosexuals. We have a whole series of jokes about people that have real struggles that we don't understand and aren't our own. We have a whole series of jokes about people that struggle with pornography or funny stories about how they're found out and caught out. And you know what the Word of God says? It says, no. Just as these things should not be present and active in your own life, neither should discussions of them be. You should not make light of these things. Recognize in making light of this sexual sin and making light of these discussions and entering into this conversation that is not edifying, it's not seeking to build people up, that you are ridiculing God's design. That's a hard truth to accept. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. And he just patently says, these things are out of place. Just as he said before, they shouldn't be named among you. Now he says they're out of place, they're out of bounds. They have no part and parcel in the new man, 424. But he's got this odd corrective measure. Before he said that you are a saint and so they shouldn't be there. But here he says, instead let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. So instead of recognizing these things as objects of ridicule, as things that you're able to laugh and glad hand about, instead of making your life this collective men's locker room where you, you joke and jest about sexual exploits, 
and, and, and humor of a sexual nature. He says, instead, what you should focus on is thanksgiving. In some sense, you could say the corrective to this, this inappropriate discussion of these things is instead turning to God and thanking him for his precious gift. It's this amazing thing. It's, it's not in silence. It's not in not having that conversation, but it's instead replacing that conversation with something so incredibly positive, coming back and thanking God for his good gift. Now look at this, chapter, chapter 5 and verse 5. This is the final verse. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. So he goes and he describes those that he just said, Look, don't be this way. He goes and he describes them. This is what he says about them. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This is difficult for us to hear. Some of us, we're in the midst of struggling with sexual identity. You're struggling with thoughts of homosexuality. You're struggling with pornography. And you read this and you weep. And it's this difficult thing of continuing to put off the old man, to renew your mind, and to put on the new man. You will continue to struggle with sin, even though Christ has won the victory over it, Romans 6. But allow me to encourage you. Not to encourage you in your sinfulness, not to, to say that it's okay, God will forgive you, because there is true and real consequence for sin. But look what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, Do you or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a much more expansive list. But hear the grace and the mercy of verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The grace of God abounds to the sinner. God came near to us while we were yet dead and lost in our transgressions, and he extended grace, mercy, and forgiveness to us. And he calls upon us to do the same to those we encounter so that they too might be united in him and receive forgiveness freedom, release, and the grace to stand. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for having a word that communicates truth to us. God, I thank you for having a word that is so much greater than our cultural entrapment so much greater Father than, than all our sin and thank you for the grace in your word 
for the forgiveness that you extend to us, God. I thank you that even when we fall, we recognize that Jesus stands ready to make intercession for those who are redeemed, for those who are sealed. And God, we thank you for that reality this morning. God, I pray that you would continue to lead us as a body to put off this old man and the trappings that come with him. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, greed, all of these things, God. Help us to put them off. Help us to walk in light of the new creation of what you have made us to be. God, I pray that as we have brothers and sisters struggling with these things, that you would raise up men and women, to walk alongside them, to call them to walk in the reality of who they now are in Jesus Christ. And Father, as we encounter the lost of our community, that we would graciously call them through your word, that we would call them to come out of this entrapment, that we would call them to come out of these lies, that they might receive grace, forgiveness, and that the love that you extend to them might graciously wash over them. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.